The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Malaysia's shocking election and Walmart's $16 billion move in India. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Sabe. Malaysia just elected 92-year-old Mahathir Mohamad as its next prime minister, delivering a stunning upset to incumbent Najib Razak. The 1MBD scandal is at the heart of this shocking turnout. I'm going to turn it over to my colleagues in Asia, who will shed some more light on the results. Thanks, Jen. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm sitting here in Hong Kong, uh, chatting on the telephone with fellow columnist Clara Marquez in Singapore and Unigalani in Mumbai. We're talking about the recent electoral upset in Malaysia, where voters just tossed Prime Minister Najib Razak out on his ear in favor of a coalition of opposition parties led by 92-year-old Mahathir Mohamed. This marks Malaysia's first change of government in six decades, which means, in effect, uh, modern Malaysia's first change of government, really. Um, and Mahathir becomes the world's oldest elected statesman. Uh, I think, you know, Clara, I think it's, it's fair for us all to admit that we were caught off guard by this. We, we weren't the only ones. Clara, why do you think so few people saw this coming? Well, it's certainly a, a surprise. I mean, we knew it was a cliffhanger election. Malaysia's come close to change before. And then in the end, um, Barisan Nasional, the ruling coalition, had, had secured enough to get through. And this happened in 2013. The really the unknown quantity here was Mahathir Mohamed, who was prime minister for 22 years until 2003. And his decision to come back into politics in January to lead the opposition really changed things. So the alliance that he was leading is a bit of a marriage of convenience, but they had enough of the Malay vote to take them over the line. And it's important to remember also that for a lot of Malaysians, Mahathir um, represents the glory years. This is the the man who stood up to the IMF, who rejected a bailout and slapped capital controls on global investors and came out fighting. We're already seeing some signs of turbulence in the ringgit. Um, there's questions about this government's economic program and, and, and going forward. What's your take on how you know, these guys can, can reassure the, the markets and investors um, to keep their money in Malaysia? There is turbulence expected, fair to say. And the reason really is we don't know that much about their economic program. And Mahathir has made conciliatory noises, but we just don't have enough detail. The populist promises that they made during the campaign are pretty worrying. Things like reintroducing fuel subsidies, abolishing GST, which is something that, so the goods and service tax that uh, uh, Najib Razak brought in, which is extremely important to contribute to Malaysia's budget, given it's got a very small fiscal base, only one in 10 Malaysians actually pay tax. So Mahathir will have to show that he is committed to financial reform, to cleaning up some of the corruption and rent-seeking behavior that we've seen. Um, And he will also have to show that he is uh, fiscally prudent. And if we can jump into that, since you mentioned corruption, uh, you know, this may well, it seems almost certain to take the, rip the lid back off the the 1MDB case, which was, you know, this big scandal that Najib managed to kind of uh, steer around thanks to being in power. Um, you know, that also pulled in some some fairly big uh, banking names from the West. Uh, Goldman Sachs names got circulated. Um, can you just kind of brief us on, on how this you see this playing out on that front? Yeah, Pete. Um, you said that why did so few people see this coming? And I actually think that 
the big mistake everybody has made here is to underestimate the importance of the 1MDB scandal. Remember, almost $5 billion was laundered from the Sovereign Wealth Fund, founded by Najib, and it went overseas into all sorts of things, including like Picasso's and yachts, you know, the usual extravagant hall of thieves. And, and, and people said before the elections, you know, 1MDB doesn't matter. This was a corruption scandal that played out in like on the front page of the newspaper every day, almost every day for the last three or four years. And it was unbelievable that they thought it didn't matter because it was, wasn't true. You know, people were fed up of the corruption enough to break from voting along race lines. And I think um, one thing people were upset about was, you know, people might say, people might have said they, they did, had sort of given up thinking about the 1MDB scandal. But the reality is, is that 1MDB altered the course of Malaysia. You know, why did so much Chinese money come into Malaysia? One of the things that people were quite upset about. Well, it only came into Malaysia because of the 1MDB scandal. So I think, like, you know, we're all realizing now that we have underestimated the importance of the scandal. And Matthias is certainly one of the core focuses and bases of his campaign and one of the reasons he fell out with Najib was because of the corruption scandal. Um, you know, you asked about, you know, what are the implications for some of the big names like Goldman Sachs and, and, and the big principles in this scandal. I mean, Mahathir is, is now hinting he'll replace the chief prosecutor who, was, who earlier cleared Najib of wrongdoing. And don't forget, that was a friendly guy he appointed at the height of the crisis. And he's saying that Najib will be held to account if he's shown to have broken the law. So, um, you know, he's, he's going to go, he might go, he might well go after the, the former prime minister. And who knows whether that will end in a jail sentence. But he may also go after the bank. Um, this was a scandal that people called kleptocracy at, the, at its worst, you know, blatant money laundering. And, and for many years, we thought no one is going to be held to account for this. And that was, that was unbelievable, too. Pointed out that this is a fairly unprecedented change of power. Um, Najib is almost certain, you know, if he steps down to be in the crosshairs, um, you know, how confident can we be that this power transition will actually be peaceful, do you think? I'll leave that open to anybody to answer. We didn't know yesterday there was a big gap um, before Mahathir was sworn in, and the concession speech that Najib made wasn't really a concession speech, so there was a bit of uncertainty for a few hours. Um, but, you know, he has been sworn in. He's been sworn in by the Sultan. He's prime minister and he will form a government. So for the moment, you know, it doesn't, it, uh, it looks like Malaysia's managed that transition. Whether Najib himself goes away quietly and tries to disappear and hide from the 1MDB scandal is a, a different matter. I mean, there's all, sorts of, there's all sorts of theories doing the rounds at the moment. You know, will he... Be, um, will Najib uh, do a runner? Will he end up in Dubai, where many politicians and exiles sort of end up? Um, will he uh, will he be thrown in jail by Mahathir? Will he be pardoned by the king? I mean, these are all questions. These are all the really big questions that we just don't know the answer to yet, and we'll get a sense in the coming days that it looks like Mahathir is going to go after Najib and to try and hold him to account. And that then poses a threat for all of the big financial institutions that you alluded to earlier that have helped move, raise money and move money around for 1MDB. And the most exposed person, entity here looks like Goldman Sachs, for sure. 
I mean, its fingerprints are all over this scandal. There was plenty of red flags in their dealings with this fund. They made plenty of questionable decisions. They raised about $7 billion for the fund, bagging enormous fees. Um, and so if the Malaysians and the foreign agencies do now, you know, look to kind of seek real accountability for the scandal, I mean, I think the banks will be in the firing line for sure. And just one final question. I mean, the other relationship, I mean, we've mentioned China, but, uh, you know, this is being seen as some as this big setback um, for China's you know, infrastructure spending push. It's it's a, it's attempt to build influence in Southeast Asia. Malaysia is in a super strategic position, you know, and here we have this candidate popping out um, and, and, you know, kind of running on a platform that, that took some loud rhetorical swings. Uh, Clara, do you think this is something that, that China should really worry about? Are they, are they going to get booted out of Malaysia? Or um, is this election threats kind of empty? Well, n- neither, really. So I don't think they're about to get booted out of Malaysia, but there will certainly be a rethink. There will be a rebalancing in the relationship. Remember how close Najib Razak was um, to Beijing. His father opened diplomatic ties with China in 1974 when he visited Mao and he's the first Southeast Asian leader to do so, really um, set a precedent that Najib then built on. Um, and of course, they came in and, and bailed him out in 1MDB and it coincided with the start of Belt and Road. So money has been pouring into infrastructure projects from, from China. Those projects have not always gone without cost hiccups. The costs have gone up. There's been questions about um, the, the loans, the, the rates that were being paid, whether local businesses were crowded out, whether they should have been using local labor as opposed to Chinese labor. So definitely some questions will be asked, contracts will be reviewed, and Malaysia has a good, has a leg to stand on, as it were. It can push back. It's in a very strategic position, as you said, not only in terms of land, you know, if, they, if the Belt and Road is to come down from Kunming through Thailand, Malaysia is absolutely critical. It's also critical from a maritime point of view because it's bang on the um, maritime Silk Road and, of course, the, the, both the South China Sea and the critical straits of, of Malacca. So they really can, they can push back. And probably what will happen is a slight reset. China will, though, continue to be Malaysia's key trading partner. And let's not forget all those Chinese companies that are using KL as a hub into Southeast Asia because China has... I think, as we said in our piece this week, many acquaintances in Southeast Asia, but very few friends. All right. Well, there you have it. Walmart just dropped $16 billion to win a majority stake in Indian e-commerce site Flipkart. A historic acquisition. And joining me on the line to talk about it is Yuna Galani in Mumbai. Yuna, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jen. So let's start with... Flipkart. Can you just tell me exactly what it is? Because here in the U.S., it seems like an e-commerce site, but what does that mean exactly? So, so Flipkart's been around in the market for about 15 years. It's not new. It started off as a bookseller, not so much unlike Amazon, and has oh. sort of morphed into this giant, uh, all-encompassing e-commerce company. Funnily enough, founded by two former Amazon employees, Sachin Bansal and Binny Bansal. They were both software engineers for the group in Bang- Bangalore before they, um, before they left to start up, start up their own company. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's kind of similar to what Amazon does in, in the US, but it's, the, the only thing that's really different is that it's, I mean, technically they call themselves a marketplace. They're matching buyers and sellers. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of very much 
uh, fighting tooth and nail, neck and neck with Amazon in India, and you know it has it has actually a bigger market share in India. So the homegrown entity is sort of so far like charging ahead. So is is Flipkart the largest e-commerce site in India? Then? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay, and so what is it? Do they have a defining factor in terms of, you know, like Amazon here in the United States is trying to make uh, inroads with groceries. I mean, does Flipkart sell groceries? Like where can you, is there a defining thing that kind of in the marketplace or is it just all encompassing? So, so one of the things that her Flipkart has, has been very successful at is um, doing these flash sales with electronic goods, like, you know, really, really like cut price mobile phones and selling them mm. en masse. But the problem with these kind of products is that they're not really like repeat purchases. I mean, they are, but only after a few years, you know, they're not like groceries. Groceries are the sweet spot in online retail because they this is how you form your sh- online shopping habits and you have to buy them every week. So so this is the kind of area that everyone is trying to break into. I would say that you know Amazon started doing a bit of groceries. Uh, Flipkart's very keen to get into the space. There's a lot of smaller players backed by Alibaba um, that have just recently been recapitalized. So like everybody is trying to break into this spot. And the reason is, is because... You know, India is like an $800 billion retail market. So it sounds huge. But, you know, predominantly the majority, the vast majority of that money is spent on food and like huh. gross- and grocery products because, you know, this is still ultimately a poor country. And so food is food is the thing that people spend most of their money on. So I could see why Walmart then this is a very attractive thing for Walmart. And I believe it's one of Walmart's largest acquisitions yet. And just to kind of put this in context, the last... Um, acquisition they made was uh, $3 billion, I mean, the lar- last large one, was $3 billion for Jet.com, also uh, founded by a former uh, Amazon uh, co- worker, co-worker, however you want to put it. So it's sort of interesting um, that they are, there really seems to me that they're placing all their chips right now in e-commerce. And this is also in light of kind of the, that they're pulling back in the UK with their deal to merge Asda with Jay Sansbury. So to me, it's like now becoming this Walmart versus Amazon story. And, you know, Walmart is starting from behind, but I I feel like they are one of the few, if only retailers that could seriously challenge Amazon in the United States and also internationally. So why don't you kind of tell me a little bit, though, about what are the risks? Like, you can see the opportunities for Walmart, but, but what are the risks in getting involved in India? Look, Walmart is no stranger to the difficulties of investing in India. They have been trying to break into this market for about a decade. You know, they've had some success. They've managed to set up a few cash and carry stores. But these are like wholesale things. You know, you have to be a member. Mm-hmm. It's not meaningful in a country of 1.3 billion people. And and its earlier JV turned like really horrible with these all these allegations of corrupt practices and stuff. So really now, like um, this this investment is is risky because, you know, it, it, Indian retail is an incredibly long game. It's it's nowhere near profitable. Absolutely not like the the Chinese market. The Chinese market is profitable, but the Indian market might be at least ten years behind, both in terms yeah. of online penetration and profits. And then and then to add, I mean, you know, people people think that Walmart could have to invest the same again. That's another sixteen billion dollars before it can realize a return. And that's one reason it might have to IPO in the U.S. sooner rather than later. And the other thing, you know, Jay. 
gen is that there could be a lot of competing voices. You know, originally we thought SoftBank was going to sell its 20% stake, and now it looks like they're umming and ahhing, and Masayoshi-san might stay in there. Mm. So although although Walmart will call the shots because they they have a like a very large stake, but you know SoftBank is not one to sit passively in a back seat. So you know and. Amazon, you know, has this incredible focus um, around the world, and in India is no different. Jeff Bezos has said we're going to commit five billion dollars to um, competing in in India, and and you know, in India they've got the full suite, right? Just like they have everywhere else, they've got movies, they've got music, they've got um, goods, they've got books because you've got the Kindle service and all that stuff. So, right, you know, like so that that's one of the disadvantages that Flipkart has here. Yeah, well, certainly I think Walmart, uh, when I just going through the transcripts and whatnot, it seems like they're going to be, you're right, it's going to be an investment for the long haul. If they're really going to go up against Amazon, they're going to have to spend to do it. And you know what, both both Amazon and Flipkart really in India have their work cut out. Because, you know, if you think about how Indian people shop, you know, this is a place where most people still go daily to buy their groceries. You know, Amazon, uh, Je- um, Amazon did a great interview recently with Reuters, and, and they said that they were aiming to eventually deliver all of their groceries within two hours. But, you know, the reality is, is that I already get all my groceries, fruit and vegetables, delivered within 30 minutes from my local vendor with no hmm. charge, with a trusted face. So they, they are not up, only up against each other, they're up against the system where, you know, people still go daily to buy their groceries. And the reason people can do that is because, you know, we all have helpers and you know you don't even have even families of modest means in India have a helper of some sort and so so these kinds of, so the shopping habits are very different as well it's not a weekly hmm. thing it's a, it's a daily thing too okay you know we'll leave it at that that's really fascinating stuff thank you so much for coming on the program no problem Jen thanks that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all my guests, Yuna Galani, Pete Sweeney, Clara Fiera Marquez, and hats off to our producers, Ross Shoulder, Andrew D'Antonio, Freddie Joyner, and Ben Kellerman. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.